they just raised my, he just raised my little girl from the dead. Yeah. Hey, not everybody gets to tell that story. But uh, you know, you do have the, the the blind men in Matthew chapter twelve. They did that. The the leper in Mark chapter one. He did that. He, he they went out and told everybody. But the other story, and the one that's relevant today that I remember, was about the boy who gave his lunch to Jesus. It was a little uh, little kid's booklet, story booklet that we had. And I would look through the, even though I couldn't read it, you know, of course it had been read to me, but I would sit and look through it and, and see the pictures and remember the story by seeing the pictures in, uh, that was in this little book. But I, and I'm kind of surprised, actually, that it stuck with me uh, because y'all know I never gave my lunch to anybody. <laughs> but uh, maybe, maybe that's why I remember it. I don't know. It's, it's such a, a crazy thing to do from my perspective. But those stories, they entertained us while they were teaching us Scripture and some communicating some very basic truths and very basic concepts. But yet, they were so much more than we could have understood at the time that we first heard them. And that's why the Word of God is so powerful. And why it benefits us so much to, to study it. Because the more you study it, the more you learn to love it. And the more you learn to live it. Amen. And so, such is the story that, that, that we have today. I remember thinking, oh, I get to, I, okay, this, is, this will be an easy one. I get to cover this. Everybody talks about this. This should be a straightforward one. I shouldn't have any trouble. Well, then I got to looking at it. And it's one of the few that is, and I'm getting ahead of myself here. It's one of the few that's in all the Gospels. As children, we learned what happened. As adults, we start to learn why it happened and why it matters. So this is, at some point after the events in chapter 5 uh, that we've been studying, where Jesus uh, has, he has now left the area again of, of Jerusalem, and he is, uh, he's learned that John has been beheaded by uh, King Herod. That's not in John, but you find it in the other Gospels. Uh, his disciples have been sent out, and they've come back, and they're telling him everything that's happened, everything they were able to do in, in Mark chapter 6. But Jesus then wants to take them off, wants to withdraw a little bit. We talked a, bit, a little bit about taking time for yourself. Jesus is trying to take some time for himself here. And his disciples, as in one uh, in one account, were told that there were so many people that uh, they didn't even have time to eat. So they go off in a boat, according to Matthew and Mark, across the Sea of Galilee, and they end up at the city of Bethsaida. Luke tells us that in chapter nine, and that's going to be important in just a minute. Because it happens to be, and we learn this from John chapter 1, where Philip 
was from. Philip's from the city of Bethsaida. So this is where they are. And all the crowds have followed them. They get to the other side and the crowds are there waiting for them. John tells us because he's been healing the sick and he then begins to do the same thing here because he feels compassion for them. So they're there waiting for him and Jesus begins once again teaching and healing. Uh, because he, he, he feels for them. He says, says in one place they're like sheep without a shepherd. And so he's been there all day. They got there to get away. Now he's been teaching all day. And the day is wrapping to a close, is, is drawing to a close. And this is when the events of this story begin to unfold. He's Feeding the, the feeding of the 5,000 here. As we've already said, it's one of the stories that's in all four of the gospel accounts. Well, there must be some significance then, too, if everybody, even John, felt like he needed to say. John didn't feel like he needed to repeat a lot. So if he repeats this one, there must be some significance to, us, to it. And it is, and I believe that's why that John is, is doing this, because he wants to highlight what it is that Jesus is doing and, and add to the depth of the story so that the reader will understand. This is why this is such a big deal. This is why, I mean, yeah, it's a miracle. He fed all these people with this little bit of food, but there's some, he's doing something more here. And, and John wants us to see that. And really, the whole of chapter six is going to explain what he's doing here. We're just going to cover the, the, the first 14 verses today, but uh, really the whole chapter is is about what it is that Jesus is doing that he sets in motion by, by this miracle that he performs. So I'm going to start in verse 4 of chapter 6. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. So Jesus after raising his eyes and seeing the large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? But he was saying this only to test him because he himself knew what he intended to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not enough for them for each to receive just a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people reclined to eat. Now there was plenty of grass in that place. So the men reclined, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were, who were reclining. Likewise also with the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten, 
their, when they had eaten their fill, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftovers, the leftover pieces, so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the, bar, of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which Jesus had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. I wanted to point out verse 4 because it begins, depending on your translation, this one says so. Your translation might say what? Therefore. So. Jesus is doing this with the eye to the, the Passover uh, being, being soon to come, which tells you that he's doing something more here than, than just feeding the crowd. He's about to teach a lesson, perhaps the most extravagant teaching aid we've ever heard of. And so he... In, in, he does this, and then as you see the rest of the chapter, work it out, we'll, we'll, we'll see, we'll see in, in total what he was doing. He truly would multiply the, bre the bread and fish to show himself as the source of life. Amen. And to set the people up for the rest of the lesson. He is later going to say, later on in the chapter, I am the living bread which came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also, which I will give for the, li for the life of the world, is my flesh. In uh, chapter 6, verse 51. Of course, he says a lot of other things there, and people are, it's hard for people to hear. They don't understand what he's saying. But John kind of fills in the details here about this event to help us see what Jesus is doing. So what exactly happened that afternoon? And, and I love these stories that appear in multiple places because you sort of get to play detective. And you read all the accounts and try to figure out, okay, uh, what happened first? How did this all unfold? It's just like, uh, like Jay Warner Wallace talks about when you have uh, witnesses. And the good thing is we know here we don't have any false witnesses. They're all true. Uh, so we don't have to worry about somebody lying, but everybody has a little bit different memory of what happened. And so we put all the accounts together to try to, to work out everything that happened during, during this time. So from that, we seem to have that the disciples may have approached Jesus first, because in the other three accounts, they come to him and they say, you know, it's getting late. I imagine they probably wanted a break too. It's getting late. Send them away. Let them go get some food. And then we can get some rest too. But Jesus says, no, you give them something to eat. And then he addresses Philip specifically, and that's the account that we have here in John, and John tells us that he did that to test him because he already knew what he would do. And Philip at this point 
all of the disciples, really at this point, they've, they've seen him, uh, they've seen him perform miracles. They should know that he's got a plan, uh, but he doesn't catch on. He doesn't catch on to it right away. But Jesus is also very practical. He also has them do very practical things. So the first thing on Philip's mind is, well, uh, there's no way we can do. Even if we've got this, even if we could spend all this money and get all this, there's, there's no way we could get enough for everybody. Now Philip was also the logical person to ask. Why? Remember, we just read, we or we just talked about the fact he's from this area. So it'd be natural for Jesus to ask him, hey, where can we go get enough food for these people? But then it's Philip's answer that we have recorded in all of the in all of the gospels about the, the, the two hundred denarii or two hundred days wages, about eight months wages it would cost, and that still wouldn't be enough. So Jesus then tells them, if we look in uh, in Mark chapter six, Jesus apparently says, "Well, go see what you got. Tell them, tell them, go find out what you have." And apparently, they didn't have anything because all they could find was this kid that had his lunch with him. As you know, when we see when we hear five loaves, we think. I remember I used to picture five Wonder Bread loaves, you know, <laughs> as a kid. But now these were these were little small, uh, little small uh, cakes of bread, uh, barley bread, uh, that he had, and, and then and then two small fish, and probably at, at most his provision for the day. But then he has them sit down, and uh, the other gospels tell us that he had, had, was well organized. He had them sit in groups of, of fifty to hundred people, and. Jesus then gives thanks and begins to pass out the food. He gives it to the disciples. John didn't tell us this. The other ones do. He gives it to the disciples, and then they, they pass it out to all the people there. And it says that we, we have it that 5,000 men, so we, we say the feeding of the 5,000. But we find out, and it makes perfect sense, right, that there would be other people there. We find out in Matthew that there's also women and children there. So we don't know exactly how many people he had, 10,000, 15,000. I don't know how many women and children would have been there, but it's more than 5,000 people. So that makes the miracle even greater. And then after they've done, after they've done he picks up 12 baskets of leftovers. Now, I, I meant to, I'd heard somebody teach on it, and I meant to try to find out just you know, what these baskets were. But these were great big baskets. And I like to think, although I don't, you know, I don't know, Bible doesn't tell us, but I like to think that that kid got to take at least one of those big old baskets home with him. I'm sure he was well cared for, whatever, however that went down. But the response of the people then, well, this must be the prophet, as it says in six four. This must be the prophet. And what do they mean by that? Well, it would seem to be a messianic reference because if you go back to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 18, verse 15, Moses is saying, you know, the Lord is going to raise up a prophet like me from among you. And that is taken to be the prophecy that would eventually be fulfilled by Jesus. So they're thinking 
this, you know, this is the, maybe this is the guy. However, on the other side of that, when we have John uh, being questioned, John the Baptist being questioned back in John chapter 1, uh, they seem to separate the prophet from, from the Christ. So there may be some other person in view here, and not necessarily that they're seeing, uh, seeing him as, as, as the Messianic figure. But on the other hand, they, we, we didn't read verse 15, but in verse 15, he's, they, he says that Jesus left that area because they wanted to come and force him to be king. So there's, there's, uh, they're starting to get the idea, but not quite. But when he slips away, after all of this has happened, they, they follow him once again. But Jesus will confront them, and we'll get to that in a couple of weeks, but Jesus will confront them and say, you, you're, not here, uh, for, you're not here for the right reason, basically. He says, you're here because you got fed. And he says, don't work for... The, they don't work for the, the, the bread that perishes, but, but uh, work for the bread of life. And I'm not doing a very well good job of representing, of representing that. I should have put the verse in here, but that's essentially what he said. When we're studying the Bible, what, what do we mean? We always get to the application of, of this. So when we're studying the Bible... I kind of broke it down into uh, some, uh, some little mnemonics to help us maybe remember the things that we should do when we're studying a particular passage. Ponder the purpose, consider the context, search the scriptures, and apply the answers. Ponder the purpose. Why did the author write this? What was he trying to communicate? Uh, and, and why is it important? When we have so little, really, uh, we have so little even of Jesus' life. John said at the end of his gospel, it, you could, you'd, you'd fill up the whole world if you wrote down everything you did. So everything that we have must be particularly important for us to understand. So why are they here? Why are we being told this? Consider the context. One of the ways that we figure that out is what, what, what's around it. What is the overall subject and purpose of the author's work, as far as we can tell? Sometimes, sometimes, we, uh, sometimes it's not necessarily spelled out for us. Sometimes it is. Now, John actually does tell us, at least in general, what he's trying to do, because at the end of his book, he says, these things were written so that you will believe. His purpose primarily was to show us Jesus in a way that would help us to believe that he is who he said he is. Amen. Is the text part of something bigger? Yes, it is in this case. It's definitely part of something. So the next third step, search the scriptures. How does 
the texts that we're reading contribute to the whole of the Bible? What other things that can we find within it, within the Bible that, uh, and of course, in this case, you've got actual parallel accounts of the same event. But what other things can we find that help us to interpret what we're seeing? And if our interpretation runs afoul of some other piece of scripture, then we know something. We know that our interpretation is wrong. And don't do what I've seen too many people do and say, well, well, that must not mean what it says it means because this over here. And, and sometimes that's right. Sometimes we're just trying to reinterpret scripture to make it fit what we want it to fit. So we should always, and I, I say this with some reservation, but we should always take the scripture uh, for, for what it says. Now, sometimes where there, there is a poetic device being employed, you do need to understand what, uh, you know, what the author is doing in a particular case, whether he's using idiom or whether he's, it, you know, it's, a, it's a poetic work that's not meant to be taken literally. Um, but you know, that's usually pretty clear within the, the pages of Scripture, what's, what's poetic and what's, uh, what's just written plainly. And then finally, once you've done all that, apply the answers. Your study has led you to the truth. Now you've got a responsibility to do something with that truth. Now apply the truth to your own life. And as James says, be a doer of the word and not just a hearer. So let's try and do that with today's passage. We talked already a little bit about John's gospel and about his, his purpose. Uh, we also know that it, it came after all of the others. I know we have it last in our, in our chronicle. That doesn't necessarily mean anything. But in this case, it was probably the last one written. All the others have been done. Mark was probably done first. So he now gets to tell us, you know, gets to expand on what's already known. And he reveals the person, the purpose, and the power of Jesus. It seems to be intended to add explanation to that which was already known. And it's written from the perspective of the one who was closest to Jesus while he was here. He's, he's sure to let, us, to let us know that. He's the disciple that Jesus loved. So now we look at the context. And we have some idea of timing with help from the other four writers, or the three writers, rather, I should say. And now John tells us what we need to know to follow his version of accounts. But we don't necessarily, in other words, to, to understand what John is saying, we don't necessarily uh, have to have the other, but the other helps us understand it better. But the key, I believe, to this whole chapter is in that verse 4 where he says the Passover was coming. So Jesus did this. And so now we look to the rest of Scripture. And we looked at the other four accounts to help us. We looked even to the Old Testament, to find out what it was that, that uh, the people would have been referencing when 
when they said what they said. Uh, we court, in other times we've looked, we've seen where Jesus has quoted the Old Testament, so it's helpful to know, well, what was he quoting? What was the context of that? And then we base our application on the entirety of Scripture. And by doing that, we can, we can hopefully, that we're, we're flawed, and we're imperfect, and we're going to disagree, and we're going to get stuff wrong, but hopefully we're, we're getting to the truth. And now we're going to apply these, these truths uh, to what we've learned, uh, to, to, to our lives. And we'll see how they fit both the current text and the Bible as a whole. And we'll then resolve, hopefully, to live what we've learned. So what are today's lessons? Well, there's really a whole bunch. The more I thought about it, the more I thought I could list here. But we're already short on time, so uh, we'll try to. I'll try to be uh, try to stick to my script here. But the first thing that I saw, anyway, was that God is always in control. Uh, Jesus knew what He was going to do. And he knew what he was setting in motion on that day when he performed this miracle. And he's going to apply it to teach some powerful lessons. The other thing that we can learn is that God is always working beyond what we can see. Now what, what they got to see was pretty spectacular in and of itself. But he's always doing something bigger than what we can see. His hand is visible within the whole of history. And we see it in the scripture. We see it in the, in the, what's one of the things that makes the Old Testament so valuable. You can see God working throughout Israel's history. And you can know from that that he is working throughout our history. He hasn't changed. He's still doing the same things today. His plans are not over. Amen. And one day, we're going to get to see the rest of the story. Not everything that's in that book has happened yet. We still have revelation to get through. Now, some people teach that that's not, you know, that it's that's all done. But I don't, uh, I don't see how that can be true. There's some things that don't fit. Maybe some of it did, but not all of it. But we are going to not only see what he's going to do next, we're going to get to be part, I truly believe this, we're going to get to be part of the next one. And that just excites me to no end. I can't wait to see what he's going to do next. This has been pretty awesome to behold. What is he going to do to top that? Whatever it is, guess what? If you belong to him, you get to be a part of it. You get to be part of his next mission. I can't wait to find out what that's going to be like. God, and finally, and number three, God is the source of our provision. And we find that in the teaching in, in Matthew, where he says, what? Don't worry about, don't worry about your... You know, what you're, going, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink. Seek first the kingdom of God. He knows you need all this other stuff. 
All these things will be added to you. We don't need to worry about our earthly life. Now, do we make plans? Do we try to be prudent? Absolutely. There's plenty of teaching on that too. But ultimately, God's our source. God is the one in whom we trust. God is the one who created this whole thing. You don't think he can handle your life? And he knows. He knows what we really need. Trust him. And seek first his kingdom. And he'll take care of the rest. God can do big things with little things. Now this young boy, we don't, even, we don't really know how old he is. We don't know his name. We don't know anything about him except that he was there that day and he was willing to give up his lunch. And because he gave up his lunch, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, fifteen, we don't know. Thousands of people got to eat. He took a very little thing from a seemingly insignificant individual that nobody looked at twice. And did a miracle that is still informing us, still teaching us even today. We, he not only fed those people, he fed the world. Spiritual food. But you know what? Spiritual food leads to food. You, you do things God's way, other things get taken care of a little bit more easily too. I'm not making any kind of foolish promises that you're going to be rich and have all your needs met. But... I do know that God will take care of you. Uh, I should say you will have all your needs met. You just may not have all your wants met. And finally, and I promise this is the last one, Jesus is the source of our life. And he gave them that day actual bread, but his purpose was to show them the source of the bread of life. Now later on, when he confronts them after he has walked on the water, got to the other side, and they're there waiting for him uh, uh, again, and he makes the comment about, uh, uh, you know, don't, don't be looking for the food that perishes. They ask him, what should we do? What should we do? And what does he say? He says, believe on him whom God has sent. It's verse, verse 29 there. Trust in Jesus and live what you believe. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your wonderful word. I can't wait to finish this. It's so exciting to uh, to see, even in the stories that we all grew up with, even the things that we think we know, we know all about that. No, your word is alive and it's still living and it's still producing fruit. And every time we'll take the time to, to, to dig into it and to study it and to try to understand it, to let your Holy Spirit guide us, we find new life. Because you are the source, and you are the source of life. So help us, Lord, to put our trust in you, 
And though it didn't say it here, uh, we know from the other accounts of that gospel, here I am preaching again, but that the disciples had to do something too. They had to take that that you were passing out and get it to the people. So, Lord, we're your disciples. Let us be involved in making sure that the people receive the bread of life. Amen. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Somebody's yawning back here. What? You were yawning? This is me. 